Amen. You may be seated. As before I introduce our speaker, I did want to ask, are there anyone who would like to share any testimonies? Did you have a chance to share the gospel with your one uh, over the last week or so? Is there anyone in here who would like to share any testimony? Are you still diligently praying for your one or praying for opportunities to share the gospel with one? All right. Well, um, we have uh, an opportunity here this morning. I, I always give, we have two very abled uh, former pastors and preachers, and I always give them first choice whenever I know that a week is gonna be, uh, I'm gonna be out or something like that, I'm not planning to be here, and I always give them first choice to cover for me. Uh, but as you know, we have uh, a new seminary in Conway, Arkansas, and, uh, and one of the, one of my beliefs is that the church should always be investing in young men who are training in the ministry. And this church, Grace Bible Church, has taken that upon themselves to begin a new seminary there. And uh, they are doing outstanding and wonderful things. And Luke, now I just drew a blank. Is it Luke Bass? Luke, Luke Bush. Okay. I think I've been calling you Bass this whole time. No, it's Bush, okay. So um, anyway, Luke Bush is a student at the seminary and I called and asked if, uh, if there's a student there who we might give an opportunity to share his gifts with us this morning. And, uh, and it was kind of a first come, first serve basis. And I think that uh, within a matter of minutes, he had already responded. And so he's here from Conway. He kind of brought an entourage with him this morning to hear him speak as well. So we know he's gotta be good if people are coming to hear him all the way from Conway. So, uh, so we're thankful for that. But um, uh, Luke is a student of the word of God. He's a very, I have, I've had a chance to talk with him a little bit and, um, and I've just been very impressed by this young man. And so uh, he's gonna come now and share the word with us. We're going to show a quick little video about who's your one, and then we're going to ask him to come and open the word of life with us. So as soon as the video is done, Luke, you come on up, okay? So that's my one, and I was able to pray with Matt about six weeks ago to accept Christ. When I presented the gospel to Matt, I used a three circles gospel presentation tool. It fit Matt's circumstances perfectly. Matt had used relationships and alcohol and a number of things to try to find fulfillment in his life and he came up empty. And so he reached out to me and said, hey, I need a friend. And I was able to go and sit with him on his front porch, present the gospel to him and ultimately pray for him. Matt finally got tired of running and realized that he needed God in his life. And since then, he's made positive steps to, to make changes in his life and to get on a discipleship track. You can do that too. Bathe your one in prayer, be intentional, look for opportunities to share the gospel at, at every chance that you get and then just be obedient to do so. Remember, the power to change lives is in the gospel. It's not in us. And so let me encourage you, be intentional and be obedient. You can do this. Good morning. <laughs> and uh, greetings from my home church, uh, the Bible Church of Cabot. Uh, and I thank you guys for this opportunity to preach God's word to you. Uh, and I also thank my quote-unquote entourage for suffering through a, a, a two-hour drive with me. <laughs> you know, about 50 years ago, uh, one of my favorite piano players was hired to perform at an opera house down in Germany. And as prominent of a musician as this guy was, this, the, the show sold out very quickly. They were expecting probably about 1,500 people. 
And um, due to some miscommunication on the venue's part, when he arrived an hour before the show in order to rehearse, what he walked in on wasn't this luxurious Steinway piano that he's so accustomed to performing on, but it was this broken down piece of junk that last minute they had a wheel in from a mom and pop shop next door. So this piano, the, the black keys on it, they, they didn't work. The pedals were stuck. The, the notes in the higher register were all tinny. They, had a, they were very out of tune. And to top it off, this wasn't even a full-size piano. This was essentially a, a half piano, meaning that it wasn't going to be loud enough to convey across the entire building. And the, the amazing thing about that, that performance that night is um, out of the entire 50 years of performing, that night was regarded as his most successful performance. And it's still to this day one of the most top-selling jazz albums on the market. <laughs> and it's, it's probably one of the most beautiful pieces of music you ever listen to. And the, the, thing, the reason I tell that story is because the inadequacy of that instrument, what it did was it wasn't a hindrance to that musician, but it put his brilliance on a much higher display than if he had performed on that, that $100,000 piano. And don't we see God work the same way? Isn't God more glorified by using the weak, broken down, humble vessel than he is the, that scientist or that wise or capable or competent uh, person? You know, as Christians, we must all aim to strive to be the, as worthy of a vessel that God can use, the most ideal instrument that he wants to use in evangelism and counseling and ministering to others. So my goal today is to preach on the three qualifications of a worthy vessel. The, the text we're going to be reading from today is going to be 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 10. So go ahead and turn with me there. Verse 1. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I, I don't know. God knows. And, and I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I would boast. But on my own behalf, I would not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a throne was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that I should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's, let's go to God in prayer one last time. Father, I pray that you teach us all what it means to be weak. I pray that you grant us the humility that we desperately need to be used by you. I pray as... As Randy prayed, that you humble me, that you keep me out of the way. I pray that on that final day, 
you give, me, you give me the grace to preach this where I can give a good account for what I'm about to say. And I pray that you give everyone here who's about to hear it the grace to be good stewards of it, where they could be, where they could give a good account for their stewardship over this message. In your son's name we pray, amen. <clears throat> the first qualification we see of a worthy vessel is that the vessel must be lowly. You know, in this, in this passage, the first four verses, Paul is talking about this extravagant supernatural experience that he had. He talks about how he was lifted up into the third heaven and had all these, these, uh, these grand revelations uh, given to him. So, so what's, what's the context of this post? Why is Paul talking about this amazing experience? Well, at the time, as many of you know, he was ministering to the Corinthian church, which was a church that made even the world cringe from the kind of sin that was going on, from the kind of issues that they were having within the church. And at the time, false teachers had gone into the church and they're, they're, uh, you have these people come in saying that they had all these revelations given to God they should, and the church needs to listen to them. And they're attacking Paul's character. They're attacking his apostleship. And so here we see Paul combating that. He's giving his apologia. He's, he's defending his apostleship. So when Paul refers to, as we see in verse two, a man who 14 years ago was come to the third heaven, he's, he's referring to himself. And when it talks about the third heaven, a good way to look at it is when scripture talks about, um, it, it talks about the first heaven as essentially the sky where you see the birds fly. The second heaven is where the sun and the stars are, but the third heaven, which is where we see here, this is the dwelling place of God himself. You know, in Job, when we see Satan go back, dart back and forth between earth and heaven to talk to God face to face about, you know, asking for permission to attack Job, this is where he was going. This is where the throne of grace is itself. And this was such a grand experience for Paul that he, he's completely oblivious on if this was just a mere uh, uh, vision or if, if God literally took him in the flesh and brought him there. And the revelations he got was so, so extravagant that he has no authority as a mere man to even talk to other people about what God had revealed to him. And, and even if he did want to talk about it, it's so inexpressible that he, he wouldn't even begin to fathom how he would go about it. So I want you, I want you to think of a modern, what this, look, what this would look like in a modern context. Imagine that you have a friend who is obsessed with the Beatles. <laughs> they, they are going on and on about how much they love the Sgt. Pepper album. And as you listen to them just ramble on and on about how much they love this, you remember about back in the day when you were close friends with the Beatles. You remember all those times you had lunch with them and you would exchange stories and they would tell you things that they, they, they never told the public, that they never would tell the paparazzi, but they explicitly meant for that, to be, that intimate knowledge to be with you. How, how long of listening to your friend go on and on about how much he loves this group would it take for you to want to bring up that story just to see what kind of reaction you could get out of them? However, as Paul's talking about this experience, we, we see that that's not the kind of mindset he has. We see how cautious and reluctant he is to even talk about this experience. We see this in verses five through six. On behalf of this man, I would not boast, but on my own behalf, I will, I, on my own behalf, I would not boast, except of my weaknesses. 
Though, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think of me more than he sees in me or hears from me. You know, this is a good reminder for us of, of the danger of painting yourself as a believer who, who has it all put together, as putting on this fake facade and this righteous mask where you just make everyone think that you, that you have no issues. <laughs> you know, one, one danger that has on your walk is you're sacrificing so much prayer that they could be praying for you while they're in the play, prayer closet. If, if someone came to me and they, they were talking about how they had, they, they're or in excruciating pain over this sin, this sin, they have no, they're not seeing any victory. They're just desperate for whatever they help, help they could get. It feels like they're just currently living in hell. I am way more likely to pray fervently for that believer than the one who says, I don't really need prayer. My life is going to be pretty good. And the reality is, this doesn't just damage your walk. This damages your brothers and sisters' walk. Because what happens is when you put on that, that mask, that, has, that puts all this pressure for the rest of your, the church to put on a mask as well. You know, the people who are humble enough to confess their sins and to seek counsel and to ask for help, these are the ones who are actually going to receive the help, the ones that are going to be faithful in the walk. And asking for help, how humbling is that? Not just to receive it, but just to ask your brother and sister to help you with indwelling sin, with circumstances that you're just trying to get through the day. Do you remember what it was like when you first asked God for help? That moment where that picture you've had of yourself your entire life as a righteous person who, yeah, you sinned, you fall short a few times, but you, you were objectively a pretty decent guy. You had all these good works under your belt where if you died, God would say, you, had, you did all this stuff, you're, you're good enough, I'll let you in. And then that moment where that picture just shattered and all that was left was that true reflection of yourself as a heinous, guilty sinner facing death. That, that moment where you realize that you can't fix all the sins you did in the past, you can't, you can't do the right thing, and you can't even desire to do the right thing. And your only hope is just to turn to Christ and say, I need you to fix me. I need a savior who can just change my heart, change my desires, to give me wisdom on how to do this, someone to die for my sins. That is one of the most humbling experiences a Christian can have in their life. And the thing is, it's amazing because I'm, I'm looking around and I see all these people who are probably 50 years further down the road than I am. And I think one danger is we just live out the Christian life out of habit, out of just routine, where we lose that sense of humility that we had in that first encounter. You know, the way we felt when we first got saved, that humility and our utter sense of dependency upon God, that we should have that throughout our entire Christian walk. Not just that moment of when you first receive saving faith. You know, the, the second point, the second qualification we see in a worthy vessel is we see that the vessel must be humbled. 
You know, verse seven, we see the means that God uses to humble Paul. So to, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a throne was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. You know, Paul, the reason he was going through such affliction, the reason he received this throne in the first place wasn't because he was living in sin. <laughs> like the way Job's friends accused him of the reason why he was suffering. The reason Paul received this throne was to keep him from falling into sin. It was God's way of keeping him at such a safe distance from falling into sin because God wanted to use him and he knew that if he didn't have that throne, he was gonna be disqualified from being used. You know, Thomas Watson, one of my favorite Puritans, he talks about the different purposes that affliction can serve. And his first purpose is the one we see here, which is it's to keep us humble. It's to, to, to root out any sense of self-sufficiency that we have in ourselves, to root out pride. But he goes on to say that you know, other purposes can be that um, it's to show the world of how capable God is to deliver us out of that affliction. You know, the third purpose could be that it's actually just chastisement. You know, it's you living in unrepentant sin, un, unwilling to give it up, and God's just spanking you to get you back in line. And the fourth purpose could be that it's, it's God's means of proving and trying us. It's, it's the way he's building our faith to, to greater degrees so that he can use us in greater ways. It's his way of toughening our skin, like James 1 talks about, how, how we should rejoice in the midst of trials because it's producing steadfastness. And if we're being honest with ourselves, what's the most difficult thing about having a thong? It isn't going, it isn't the circumstances, it's the fact that it constantly reminds us that we're not God. It's a constant reminder of our creatureliness and the fact that it doesn't matter what we do, unless God builds the house, the house is never gonna be built. And so often, whenever we're in the midst of a trial, maybe some of you are going through a trial right now, and, and your way of dealing with it is you try to run down every avenue, every other source of worldly wisdom, every source of relief that you can other than God. And God's way of dealing with that whenever we, we have that tendency to fall into that trap is he just blocks off every possible street that you try to go down that doesn't inevitably lead back to Christ. You know, the Greek word that is used to, to, as for thone, it could be translated as stake. So this, this thone that was given to Paul, it wasn't like an attack. It wasn't just something that was kind of pricking him. It was this excruciating stake that was lunged into his side. And there's no, there's no good way to translate this into the English, but the word given, it has this sense of it was given to him and it was never taken away. It was given to him, and that was the end of the story. And it goes on to describe what the stone was. We, it, it describes it as a messenger of Satan to harass him. And as, as of what this looks like, we don't know. God didn't see fit to explain the details of what this looks like. It could be persecution. It could be pride. It could be uh, uh, that medical issue Paul had with his eyes. Oh, it could be all of it. We don't know. But the description here is that it was a minion of Satan who was harassing him 
And some of your translations may say buffeting him. I think that's a better way of looking at it. It was this, mini, it was this demonic servant of Satan who was just relentlessly pounding on Paul day after day, no mercy, just beating him as much as he could. And then we see Paul's response to this, which isn't to complain, it isn't to mumble, it isn't to have a woe is me mentality, but it's to patiently endure. In fact, it's to worship God in the midst of it. You know, how pointless is it, is it to argue with God and to resist when he's just trying to humble us? How, how, how pointless is it and counterproductive is it just to argue with God and to be even angry with him just because he's trying to root out the, the cancerous sin and pride and selfishness in our life and how he's just trying to drive us closer to him in the midst of that suffering. You know, Matthew 23, 12 talks about whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And James 1, 12 says something similar. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And some of you may have temperaments where that resentment you have towards God and, and your way of resisting that thorn in the flesh isn't, doesn't come out outright as you arguing with God or being angry with him, but maybe it comes out and you're, you're just being passive about that suffering. Maybe it comes out in a way where you're just, endure, just trying to get through the day where you're just enduring it because you have no other option. That's just as worse. Because when we have that, that mentality, what we care about is when is this gonna end? When am I gonna get my creaturely comforts back? When it should be, what is God trying to teach me in this? How can I serve and glorify God most in the midst of the suffering? As Christians, we need to have this constant mentality of how do I not waste my suffering? Because that's what, that's what we're called to. <laughs> we're called to suffer. And that's gonna become very evident in the near future. Verse eight, we see Paul's plea about this thorn that was given to him. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that I should leave me. You know, it's... We see a lot of similarities between Paul, the way Paul pleads about this thorn and the way Jesus prays at Gethsemane. We see that they both went to God three times asking that the cup may pass away from them only to have received the same answer from God, which is, that's not my will. And by the way, this is a good reminder for us all that it is a biblical thing to pray for God to take affliction away from us but only if you have a heart that's willing to endure it if that's not what God wants. You know, and this also is a good demonstration on how affliction and thorns in the flesh, how God doesn't just use this to expose sin in our lives, how it, he, he, the way he uses this to bring us closer to him is by using that to drive us deeper into prayer. That's to be the biblical response when trials hit you, is it should drive you deeper into prayer. It should drive you, and, and it should make you more thirsty for righteousness, thirstier to see what God, the way God looks at your situation. You know, a while back, I had a friend and his wife who came to visit from Oklahoma. 
And as they were visiting, we were all talking about the way God's used trials this past year to bring us close to him. And the wife said something that caught me off guard. And what she told me was she had just now gotten the courage to pray that if trials are the only ways, the only way for her to be closer to God, then send her more trials. Her husband did not like that prayer, by the way. <laughs> but shouldn't we all have a heart that is willing to pray for that? Or at the very least, a heart that's willing to ask God to change us so that we're willing to pray something like that? Are you, if, if going closer to God and cultivating your relationship means that you have to suffer, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to sacrifice your, your, your comforts, which so often we just idolize, so that you can have a deeper relationship with Christ? You know, whenever we, we uh, lay down these pleas before God, he's always gonna give us one or two answers. The first answer could be that he, he just takes it away out of mercy and grace. And praise God for that. We've all seen him do that before. Or it could be that he gives you the strength to endure it. You know, when we look at where the country's headed, as we see how all this crit race theory stuff is, is blowing up, as we see persecution, as, as we look at what's happening in Afghanistan, do you guys ever have these hypothetical situations pop in your head where you just become anxious over how you would handle that? If someone held a gun up to your wife's head and told you to deny Christ, do you ever get, become anxious on, would I be faithful if something like that happened to me? One thing we need to remember is that God's not gonna give you grace to, have, to handle a situation that hasn't happened yet. God gives you your daily bread, not your week's worth of bread, not your month's worth of bread, and not even three days' worth. He gives you your daily bread so that you're forced to keep coming to him constantly and that you don't put your faith in that week's worth of inventory rather than himself. You know, when we look at Stephen as he was being stoned in Acts, it wasn't until the heavens opened up when he was at the brink of death that he received the grace to endure the death he was about to, to go through. And I wanna make it clear, if you're faithful with how things are right now, if you're faithfully in the word, you're faithfully preaching, you're faithfully serving the church and going to church, when that day comes, when you may have to go through something like that, God's gonna give you grace to be faithful in that moment too. And the fact that we see how much Paul is pleading over this stone and the fact that we see what, what just the links that God goes to just to humble you, just to keep you from falling into sin, that is a good reminder on how severe sin actually is. If you're tempted to flirt with sin or become apathetic towards it, if, you, if there's pride in your life or anxiety, because yes, anxiety is a sin. If, if, there is, if you overeat, if you look at pornography and you become apathetic towards that, that is a severe thing that God does not take lightly. And we should all be praying that God gives us a throw in the flesh to keep us at a safe distance from all those sins. The third qualification in a worthy vessel is we see that the vessel must be content. He 
needs to be satisfied in God and not in his circumstances. You know, verse nine, we see God's response as Paul is laying down his plea. But he said to me, this is God who's saying this, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul, God is telling Paul that his love and his grace is what's gonna get him through this. It's not a change in circumstances. And if you're, if you're here right now and you have a marriage that is just in shambles, you have that husband that just doesn't pick up the clothes and you think the solution is for God to fix your husband, the, the solution is not for God to fix your, your, your marriage in that way or to change your kids who just won't behave or to fix your financial situation. It's to know God more. That is the solution. It's to, to receive a greater amount of grace and love from God and to run to him and to know him in deeper ways and not just use him for your, to receive more comforts in your life. And one thing we need to ask ourselves, this is... This is really important for evangelism. We need to ask ourselves, why is God's power made perfect in weakness? You know, one of my favorite examples of this is in Judges 7, when we see Gideon. And in that account, we see that God took this man of so little faith that he had to test God three times in a row with a wet piece of string before he had the courage to actually obey him and believe him when he told him to go out into battle. And that account, Gideon had an army with 22,000 people and he's about to go out. And what does God say to him? He says, that army is too big. If you, if you conquer these people with that kind of army, you're gonna have reason to boast and I don't want that. Cut it down. So he, he lowers it down to 10,000. And God's saying, that is still too many, lower. And so once he gets it down to a mere 300 people, all odds were defied, he gained a, a, a victory that, that no one was expecting and where God got all the glory and that this weak vessel had no grounds to boast in it at all. That is a huge encouragement when we're evangelizing, isn't it? <laughs> where the pressure isn't on us or our arguments or our intellect. And we're just knowing that God's more glorified in using a meek, weak Christian to win over an atheist than he is that, that person who has read all the apologetics all, all the arguments, all that stuff. You know, I remember when I first got saved, I had this overwhelming desire just to evangelize everyone I could. <laughs> and at the time, I was, I was teaching at Guitar Center, and there was a coworker who I, I had my eye on. He, he was the most intellectual person I've ever met. But he, I've never met someone who hated God as much as he did. His entire life was the sole focus of it was just tearing down the Christian faith. Every argument you would hear an atheist say, he had right under his belt. And when I got saved, I read, I spent weeks just reading every book on apologetics that I could because I was scared that he was going to ask a question that I didn't know the answer to. So after I, I read all those books, we spent the next eight months just every day, debate after debate after debate about tertiary things. It was never even about the gospel. It was about early manuscripts and philosophical arguments and all this evidence and that evidence. And what I noticed is that even in that entire eight months, nothing I said ever brought an ounce of conviction and never affected him emotionally and never got him to think in deeper ways. 
But I remember one day, as I was coming out of my lesson studio, I just heard him yelling at the top of his young lungs, cursing, bright red-faced, boiling red. And as I'm looking around, I see all my coworkers just terrified. And the, the person who he was so angry with was this middle-aged mother who was evangelizing him, who was trying to get strings for her 10-year-old son. And all I hear him say is, how do you explain all these contradictions in the Synoptic Gospels? How do you explain all these early manuscripts that just don't add up? And you look at her and she's scared. And all I hear her say is, I don't know. I don't know anything about that. You're smart. But I know that Jesus loves you and he died for you. And he just got even angrier and threw more objections. And that was always her response. Every time he threw an objection, it was, I don't know, but Jesus died for you. This went on for three hours, and I can just say that that happened three years ago, and ever since that interaction, that man has not been the same. There has been a fear and a conviction and a heightened awareness of where he's going, all because of that woman and her faithfulness with the gospel. It wasn't my, God did not use me. because He did not use my apologetics or my intellect. He used that believer who honestly didn't have the sharpest theology, didn't know any of the, the arguments, but she was faithful. As Paul is talking about how he's willing, he wants to boast in his weakness because the power, that's, that's when the power of Christ rests upon him. You know, that can also be seen as it spreads a tabernacle over him. It's this picture of when you're weak, that's when God that's when God essentially pitches up a tent and dwells richly in it. That's when you are most spirit-filled. That's when you are most capable. It's when you see the weakness in your flesh. That's, it's when you see all the frailty and the vanity and you're just trying to win someone over to Christ just out of brute force. It's, it's, it's seeing the vanity of you trying to force opportunities rather than just trusting God to open up the opportunities. You know, I think that's, that's an issue a lot of people have with evangelism is we, we put all the pressure on us. We put all the pressure in trying to create, drive things to that topic of the gospel rather than just praying, God, God, open up the opportunity and I'll be faithful with it if, if, you, if you give it to me. And as we're talking about contentment, we need to remember that contentment, it comes from the end result. It doesn't come from the circumstances. And the end result is God's glory and our sanctification. You know, if you're like me, I struggle a lot with contentment. And a good way to test yourself to see if you're handling your contentment over whatever situation you're in right now in a biblical way is just to imagine five minutes of enduring that affliction, if Jesus Christ was to return and you had to look him in the eye and give an account for how well you served him in the midst of that affliction, how well you were satisfied in him and not just being bitter, would you give a good account? Would Christ look at you and say, good job, well, well done, good and faithful servant? Or are you gonna have to look at him the same way Peter looked at him when he just denied him? Will you just get a blank stare? Thomas Watson says that discontent is a fretting temper which dries the brains, wastes the spirit, corrodes, and eats out the comfort of life. 
Discontent makes a man not enjoy what he does possess, similar to how just a drop or two of vinegar would sour an entire glass of wine. Just a drop or two of discontentment would embitter and poison all. Do you realize that the discontentment you have in your life is poison? That despite all the blessings God's given you, you, you are completely oblivious to it. Because all you can think about is that, that one little thing that you think you should have. Thomas Watson gives a few more tests on contentment. One, one is that a contented spirit is silent when it's under affliction. Do you, do you find that when you're suffering that you just mumble and complain about everything? Or do you just, do you just silently and patiently endure it? seeking God's will and how to glorify him in the midst of it. The second test is as a contented spirit is a thankful spirit. Guys, how many of your problems would just go away if the first thing you did when you woke up in the morning was thank God for the rest he had just given you, for thanking him that you didn't die last night? The, second, the third test is that he who's content does not turn to sin for relief from the situation. And the final test is that he who's content, no condition comes amiss to him. He doesn't become frantic when, some, when circumstances change and he gets hit with a trial out of nowhere. You know, we, we all need to be a people who say, God, this throw in the flesh is the medicine you chose to give me. I would drink however much of it for however long you want me to if you give me the grace just to endure it. In verse 10, we see the strength and weakness. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, we, when we suffer, we, we're doing it, we, we, we are given the honor of suffering for Christ. This isn't the way unbelievers suffer. For unbelievers, it's collateral damage that is purposeless. It has no hope. For us, we can rejoice in it, knowing that it's, it's constantly rooting out all that cancer that lies in us. It's constantly making us closer to God and, and, and going on knowledge in him in deeper ways. You know, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 16 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's the same language here. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And it's in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities that we can rejoice in. When your community is just dragging your name in the mud, telling lies about you. When you lost that relationship to your brothers and sisters and your children and your parents because you were just trying to give them the gospel. You can rejoice in that. When you go through some trial, whether it's big or small, like the family that just lost the home, you can rejoice in that, knowing that God is using that to humble you because he wants to use you. He's using that trial to equip you for some greater trial in the future so that you can glorify him in greater degrees. 
Isn't that what you want? You know, it's not till God strips us of all that pride that we become strong. It's not till he takes all that toxic gunk and tar and pride and selfishness out of that vase that he's willing to dwell in it. We should constantly be praying for God to purify us so that we can be used. You know, that's, that's one issue that the church has today, that we become apathetic towards whether or not God uses us. We become apathetic towards evangelism, towards missions. You know, I remember three months after I got saved, I came down with a case of what the doctors referred to as super pneumonia on my bottom right lung. As I'm in the hospital going through all these MRI scans, the doctors come back and tell me I may have cancer. And at the time, I wasn't scared of dying. I wasn't scared on whether I was going to go to heaven or hell. What I was scared about was that blank stare I was going to get from Jesus' face when I had to tell him I never once evangelized someone. I never once did anything to further your kingdom. I, didn't, I never did anything to serve you. Because up to that point, my, my entire life was focused on my sin, killing my sin, just getting through the day, going, find, trying to find the solution to my issues. It was never Christ-centered. It was never focused on his kingdom. It was focused on myself. So my question to you is, if you got cancer today, are you going to give a good account to God? Can you say, I've, I faithfully evangelized those, those opportunities you've given me? I was faithful in them. And we need to also constantly be in a state of humbling ourselves rather than, having, rather than God humbling us. It's a much less painful process. You know, one, one of the scariest things when I'm counseling someone is when you have a professing believer in front of you who you, you're convinced is a believer and there is sin in their life that they are not repenting of and when you, when you confront them with scripture and tell them what God says about it, and you just watch the heart become more and more calloused. Where you just hear them say, that's just your interpretation. You're, you're, just, you're taking this, sin, this problem a little more serious than you need to. That is a scary thing when you watch them just become harder and harder towards the application of the gospel. Because one of two things is always gonna happen. Either, as First John says, a believer cannot live in sin. And I know that either I'm about to, I, I may see this person fall away from the faith I may see that they were never actually a Christian. Or it may be a situation where I'm about to see God chastise them in a very painful way. I'm about to see God humble them in a way that is gonna hurt. And what God so often does when he humbles us in those situations is he says, he lets go of that leash and he says, you can go after that dog vomit, you can relish in it and you can relish in the consequences of it. And whenever you're done suffering for your choice, you can come right back here and have this living water that I want to give you. And so often, those consequences from us going back to that dog vomit have lifelong implications. For the Christian, the entire life is a life of being humbled and praise God for it. We need to make sure that we are willing and able and pray for God to give us the grace to, to go through that. <laughs> so as we go about our weeks, I, we all need to ask ourselves, am I willing to be that broken down half piano 
with the broken keys and the out of tune notes so that God could be more glorified in using me? Or am I going to keep trying to convince others and myself that I'm that $100,000 piano? Let's, uh, let's go to God in prayer. Father, I pray that none of us leave here unchanged. I pray that you give every one of us an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. And I pray that you use us and give us the wisdom and grace and the humility to be used and that you, you take all the eyes off of ourselves and direct it towards you. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for that word, Luke. Uh, you've had the word given to you this morning from the word of God. Amen. Amen. We certainly give you our appreciation and our thanks. And I'm just going to ask everyone to stand for a moment. And I'm just going to ask you to uh, just bow your heads for a moment and, and, and just reflect on what you have heard from the word this morning, that am I willing to be that, that broken piano? Uh, or am I trying to convince everyone I'm a $100,000 grand? Let's just ask ourselves, if, uh, which one am I this morning? And maybe you're in the midst of a trial and you need to know, uh, how, can I, how can God use this trial to make me more like Christ? That, that's the question that I hope you're asking yourself this morning. So we're just gonna, I'm gonna ask the musicians that are up there just to, just to play a little bit. I would just ask you to, to bow your heads for just a moment and just reflect on that. How can God use my current status, my current situation to, to do his work in me, to make me more like Christ? How can I glorify Christ in where he's got me right now? I just want you to reflect on that for a few.